Well, we continue in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, and uh, we'll be looking at chapters 5 and 6. And uh, I debated how to present this as far as, you know, we normally read all the verses, and then I thought, oh, no, we'll read it in sections. And then uh, came back to the thinking that, no, I'm just going to read it in its context. And, and, and so uh, follow along with me, if you would, please. We're starting with chapter 5, verse 1. God, your steps, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. If you see in a, in, excuse me, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When good increase, they increase uh, who eat them. And what advantage has their, has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of a rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift from God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on, 
on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and, it, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or knowing anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he could, should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known that uh, what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now, I don't know about you, but in reading through all of that, you look at that and, and you say to yourself, That's, there's a lot of things that sound discouraging in that. You know, if you were reading this today looking for something uplifting, you would, you would, there's a few verses in there, but generally speaking, you look at it and you say it's very discouraging. But remember the theme of this is that Solomon is looking under the sun. He's looking at the earth in the sense of fallen man and fallen man being in control. And when you start to really look at that closely, you realize there isn't a lot of encouragement. In fact, if anything, you find the things, a lot of, of, of discouragement. And you know, we might think to, today in our culture uh, that some of the things that we experience uh, globally in different countries and things that are going on, that we might think, gee, you know, is that something new? Well, there's nothing new under the sun. But that's, again, one of the themes of, of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. And so as we look at this this morning, I'm going to quickly go through, actually starting with verse 8 of chapter 5, and just uh, look at it and, and make sure that we, we catch anything that's important for us today. And then I'm going to go back to verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5 and, and focus on that. So, uh, a brief overview, if you will, as we look at chapter 5, verse 8. It says, don't be amazed at the results of a fallen world, basically. Uh, look, there, you see oppression. You see injustice. You see a lack of righteousness. And one thing you need to be sure and understand is, even though it doesn't seem to be happening where we can see it, there is a point and a time where accountability will be had. 
and justice will be served. So we look around and we see the oppression and we see where's God in all of this? And we can't see His whole plan. And it's so frustrating sometimes as we look at it and we think, God, where are you? How, how can you let this happen? And, and I think of, of, of you know, the sadness of, of when uh, children die in, in, in famine or war and different things. And you say, where is God in all of this? And yet, what we're seeing is the result of a fallen world. And the consequences that go with that. And so we say, gosh, look at the oppression, look at the injustice, look at the lack of righteousness. And what we need to be sure that we understand is, God says there will be a reckoning, if you will. There is a point in time where accountability will be called for. In verse 9, a a quick comment in reference to a king whose focus is different than oppression and, 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 and injustice and and lack of righteousness, and it says there's a gain for people who have a king who is committed to cultivated fields. And I looked at that and I thought, well, that's that's interesting, you know, cultivated fields. But you got to remember the time, uh, total the economy was basically agriculture. There is uh, there is a few industrious things that were there's making of cloth and making of of, of of different kinds of things, but even that requires the agriculture to provide the, 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 the materials to do these things. And so, if there's cultivated fields, what it means, it says, is the king's got to focus here. He's got to focus on the people. That their fields are healthy, that their, their, their commerce is healthy, that they have the, the things that they need to survive. And so, there is that going on within the framework of a fallen world. We find situations and times where we see godly leadership and we see them doing godly things and we see them concerned for the people. So that's kind of like, again, it seems like every chapter has that little ray of sunshine to catch a glimpse of the fact that that there is something good out there still can go on. Verse 10, though, says, you know, lovers of money or, or of wealth, they don't have any satisfaction. And I was looking at that and I'm thinking, you know, it is true. It would seem that the more people have, the more they want. And they're never happy with what they have. They're like never having enough. And the irony of that is you have situations where people get to the point where they have more than they can ever spend in their lifetime but they're not done. And within the framework of this, their willingness to step on other people and, 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 and whatever to get the more. And so that's where this oppression comes from, this injustice and lack of righteousness will come from frequently is those who are striving after getting more and, and more again. And so lovers of, of money, lovers of wealth, they never seem to be satisfied. Uh, the I, I put the love of money, the the, the love of stuff, <laughs> uh, and I don't know if you know anybody or people that like that, but I I have a a person that I I knew really quite well growing up in in Southern California, 
And uh, he just had uh, a very successful business. And I always said that, that he kind of had a Midas touch. As, as soon as he would get something going, it would, it, would, it would turn prosperous. And he would either sell it or develop it more and, and, and reap the rewards of it. He ended up with his house, uh, which was a, uh, a, a copy of the governor's mansion in Georgia and in the outskirts of San Luis Obispo. It was completely out of place, but it was very opulent and it was very beautiful. The thing that was, was unique about it was instead of having the carriage house, uh, it, he had a seven-car garage and... and you know, he, he enjoyed filling it up and he'd get bored with one kind of a car and buy another one and get, you know, he, he just, he couldn't spend it fast enough and it came in faster than he could spend it. And I, I looked at that initially and thought, wow, I'd worked with him in the same wood shop when he was in, in, in college before all of this happened. And I thought, wow, this could happen. You know, I wonder if that could happen to me. And and it obviously didn't. Uh, you know, but I can't I can't say that I didn't think about some of the, the the kind of daydreams that you might have in reference to having that kind of resources. And I ended up doing some work for him, and uh, you know, it was just to uh, to listen to him talk. And this was after I'd become a Christian. I wasn't a Christian when I first met him, and I realized that he has no time for God. He has no time for spiritual stuff. He's just obsessed with getting more. And at any price. And what it cost in his family was horrendous. So we look at these things and we realize, you know, what, what Solomon is saying, those who are in love with the money, with the wealth, they'll never be satisfied. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that, that money and wealth isn't the only thing that people fall in love with in the sense of obsession. And as a result, they still, again, are never satisfied. There's a, a number of things. We could actually turn it around and say that, you are, that people can be addicted to. The pursuit of money is an addiction. You can become, you know, we, we talk about alcoholics. Well, we also have what? Workaholics. People who are addicted to, to, to their work. Uh, and 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 they can't do enough. They they you know, they they need to do more than and get more from it and this type of thing. So uh, I have a, a definition, as some of you have heard before, of of what it is to be uh, addiction. And addiction is any short-term gratification that has long-term uh, negative results. In other words, you're obsessed with the short-term gain, and but the long-term is a negative. And and it can be anything. It can be shopping. It can be, you know, uh, I, I can't think of anything. All of a sudden, my mind, my mind went blank. You probably could fill in the gaps. But it, it's the idea is, is it anything can become an addiction, bring short-term gratification, but long-term destruction. So, uh, you know, this idea of, of lovers of, we had money and wealth here, but it could be a number of things that would fill that in. 
And, and look at verse 11. I thought it's an interesting phrase here, or sentence. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, when goods increase, all I do is consume more. And as I consume more, I don't have, and so all I can do is have a memory of it. I can, you know, I, I, I can't touch it. I can't relate to it any longer because I've consumed it. I've used it up. And as a result, I need to get more of it, you know, to, to use up even again. And so increased goods just simply means uh, that I'm never satisfied. So, again, it's not just the money. It's not just the wealth. It's, it's having stuff and using it up. And then this, this thought that comes into the middle of this. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. And, and then it says, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And, and so I put down here for my notes, who sleeps the best? And I'm thinking, you know, it says the laborer versus the rich man. Okay, and it says here the rich man doesn't sleep well. I'm thinking, but why not? Why shouldn't he? He has all the creature comforts. He's, he's got the best bed. He's got, you know, he's got all the things that should be able to do this. What is keeping him from sleeping well? What do you think? That's a small group today. Open it up. What do you think? He doesn't want to lose them. He's protecting them. He's afraid of what might take them. I remember when I wanted my first car. And my, my dad was you know, straightforward with me. And he, and he says, your car will own you. And he was right. Well, I can go with that. Mine was a TR3, and they're just as temperamental. You know, dual carburation, zenith carburetors, and that you have to play with every time you start it up almost. Uh, and uh, I loved that car. Don't misunderstand it. But, but it, you know, the amount of, of time and effort and, and resources that got poured into that car over the years, uh, I would have been far better off when I finally did sell it. I bought a 1957 Ford pickup, and I hardly ever had to do anything to that. You know, and, and it was far better college-related. It was a far better investment because it didn't require so much. But it wasn't very fun. But you, you, you can see what I'm getting at is, is that, that we, we, we just we want our stuff. And, and, and the, the rich man, he is concerned about how to protect it, how to keep it, and how to get more. And it even bothers him in the middle of the night. And if you think about it, you might even know someone that is like that, uh, that you know, they're next, always contemplating. And this guy I was telling you about just a minute ago, he had sleep issues. And it turned into the doctor called it insomnia, but he didn't have it before he had all these things. You know, but he, had to, he would lay there in the middle of the night and get an idea and have to write it down and, and, and spend time figuring it out so that he'd be able to to implement it the next day, this type of thing. So, it, it, being the laborer, you do your work, you do your job, and if you do it with the right attitude, you do it well, 
and 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 you go home with your what you agreed to to work for and and you are able to go to sleep and sleep at night and and what he's saying is is that the what it is is that this obsession with having this stuff complicates all sorts of things in your life so who sleeps the best the laborer does uh because the other guys sitting there how do i get more and how do i keep what i have In verse 13, it says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Again, when we see the word under the sun, we mean it's a worldly thing that we're looking at. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. In other words, to his detriment. In other words, wanting and keeping and consuming and and gathering became something that actually became a detriment to him. In this case, it says in verse 14, And those riches were lost. In a bad venture. In other words, in the ability, in the desire and the want to what? Get more. He made a venture, a business venture, and what happened? It went sour. And he lost everything. And how do I know that he lost everything? Because it says, and he is a father of a son. But he, the father, has nothing in his hand. Which means I have nothing to be able to give my son in his inheritance, which to this culture was an extremely important part of their family, was to leave an inheritance. By the way, this, this person that I mentioned went through three bankruptcies. Same thing again, because he'd get involved in, in, in taking a, a, a risk on something that was going to make more money faster than what normal business transactions were going to do. And he couldn't wait to to do it and to get more faster. But what is amazing is, he's still a wealthy man. You know, he managed to figure out a way to get back into it again and again and again. Verse 14 says, Those riches lost in a bad venture... And, and it, like I said, it's a total loss. Nothing left for his son's inheritance. Verses 15 and 16 says, uh, gives us kind of the end of this in a sense of looking at, this also is grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And when I say just as he came, I mean just as he was born, how? Naked. He will go out naked. Meaning you, you can't take it with you. We make a joke about that. I don't know how many times we've already had to say that in this process. But the reality is, you can't take it with you. And, and so, you get to the point where you're accumulating so much. For what purpose? You know, and is, 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 you know, you've got more than you can consume, and yet you're still gathering. And, at, and, and normally at the expense of other people. He came, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the, for the wind? In other words, you know, all this stuff, while he actually is grabbing a hold of physical stuff this way, in a context of eternity, it's just a wisp of smoke. That's what we're, he's going through vanity. All things are vanity. 
Behold. Oh, let's go back. Uh, Moreover, all the days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Vexation is worry and, and fret. Okay? So again, what's he worried about? What's he fretting about? The same thing that's causing him to lose sleep. How to maintain, how to keep a hold of, and how to get more. And so it's, it's, it is an obsession for him. And then we have the word behold. And the idea of behold here is take notice. Uh, what I have seen uh, to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So, be content with what you've got and enjoy it. Now, by the way, some people, you know, eat, drink, and be merry type of of thought comes out of this way of thinking. But the idea is, is what you have, is it okay to enjoy it? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong. That's and the reason why I wanted to be sure we point this out is that we have within the Christian network of people, we have certain people that in in their faith that have their unwritten rules that you can't really find in the Scripture. That that the idea of of, of I need to to not enjoy the things of this world. I I, I need to be austere. I need to be uh, pulled back. I need to restrict myself from enjoying and having nice things. If God has put you in a position to have nice things and, and to enjoy it, there's nothing wrong with that. I had an acquaintance in, in San Jose while I was in Bible college uh, that I met who invented a, or, or developed, I guess you might say, a, a uh, chipboard computer item, and he had done it in his garage. And and uh, he and he found a guy in, in, in to help manufacture it and got it going, all this kind of stuff. And then a Japanese company came in and offered him an obscene amount of money. And not only that, but that not and that was the money up front. But then also that if he would continue to develop this product in a couple of areas, they would pay him X number of dollars a, a, a year. Uh, for over the next many years as well. And so instantly he has this, this great sum of money. And he went out and, and bought a house in Los Gatos Hills. He bought a, you know, a, I, we joked about it in the sense, you know, a Cadillac for each foot and, and, and just all this stuff. And about six months in, he fit the picture. He wasn't happy. He had all this stuff, but he wasn't happy. And we think, is this a cliche or something like this? You know, I would be happy, right? You know, I, I think I would. You know, and, and, and what happened was that he decided to scale back. And he bought a, a, a house and a development still in Los Gatos Hill, but, but, you know, and still really nice. And he, he drove a Buick instead of the Cadillac. You know, I mean, he, he scaled back, but he was still in, in, in luxury. And he found out that what he really wanted to do, and he was a believer, uh, was to use his resources. And he ended up to be one of those people where 90% of what he was getting coming in was going out into missions. 
specific missions. Now, it wasn't just, uh, it had to be overseas and it had to meet certain criteria. And they actually, uh, five different churches got together and created a board so that they would be able to, to govern this so that, that no one church would have it all uh, to, uh, as their resource and, and made sure that all these different missions would be developed with it. And I thought, wow, what an amazing thing. And you know, he was absolutely a different person. And he constantly, with a smile on his face, he was enjoying life. And he was still enjoying a, a definitely upper crust lifestyle. But, it, 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 you know, it was that wrong that he would do that? Well, I'll tell you, it was interesting. Some people thought that he was overdoing it even at that point. You know, and going out to a nice restaurant instead of McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not joking about that. Uh, and so you look at this and you realize it is okay to have nice stuff if God has put you in a position to have it. But the other side of it is, are you using what God has given you in such a way that you bring glory to God as well? And and so this 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 guy you know that here is being talked about uh, you know it says the darkness vexation sickness and anger were the byproducts of what he was going through and I thought you know darkness gloomy depression vexation is worry and fret sickness both physical and mental that go with that and then anger when something doesn't go your way you explode you blow up. Uh, you know, uh, you you uh, uh, you know, somebody does something slightly different than what you want, give him the axe and fire him type of thing. You know, this, you know, just all of the kinds of things that can go with this. Uh, so uh, then, take notice. Let me get your attention. Here is what that means. I have seen to be, you know, it is good and fitting to eat, to drink, to find enjoyment in your hard work under the sun. And in the short life that God has given you. And you notice how many times he's already referred to the short life that God has given us. Compared to history, we're a flash in the pan. If we get four score and ten, three score and ten, you know, is what God says is, is, is a, a reasonable lifespan. That's 70 years. And everything above that, it's not borrowed time. Don't, don't, I've heard people say that you're on borrowed time now. Uh, You know, it's just, it's a gift from God to use to glorify Him and to to help others and to, to have the opportunity to lead others to the Lord, that type of thing. But God has given it to you. So enjoy what God has given you. Be satisfied. Be thankful. And and so I think that, that in the midst of all of this, we still have those little glimmers of, of uh, uh, the idea that, that it's, you know, God can bless us in the midst of a fallen world under the sun. But it's normally when we get to that point where we are looking for how to relate to God in the process and to be in a relationship with Him. Look at chapter 6 real quick and... and, and uh, it says, there is an evil I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy uh, on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. 
but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. You know, it sounds confusing there, but basically what he's saying is that God gives someone great bounty and and he basically he enjoys it, but he enjoys it in such a way that he ignores God. And and you know, he said this is vanity. Uh, if a man and, and you can look at this and think about this man and his indulgence here when you see the next uh, line. If a man fathers a hundred children, he's not going to do that with one wife. What do we, you know, some people think that Solomon is referencing his own life here in some ways and what he learned from it. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, uh, meaning that, that at the time of death there's no one that cares to, to give him the honor. Have you ever uh, seen a... I've never done a funeral where people didn't show up, but I have been in the cemetery where there was a funeral where there was the hearse and there was a couple of people and that was it. You know, and and basically that's kind of the picture he's saying. There's no there's no burial. There's no extended things that go with it in the sense of, of uh, showing that nobody really cares that you're gone. Nobody cares that you lived. And that's the, the picture that's that's drawn into that. He says, uh, uh, if a man fathers the, you know, 100 children, uh, soul is not satisfied, his life's good thing. He also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. I thought, what a morbid picture. And I started to think about it because I do believe that a child before the age of accountability is safe in the Lord. Now, some people don't agree with that, and that's fine. You can choose that. But this is one of the verses that you might use to, to say, you know, stillborn child is blessed. And, and you think, well, they never got a chance to live. No, they bypassed this fallen world <laughs> and are with the Lord face to face. They've actually been blessed in some ways that you might want to look at it. Uh, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in the darkness the name is covered. Moreover, it, referring to this stillborn child, has not seen the sun or knowing anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, the guy who has a hundred kids. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, two thousand years, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place now, this is timed into the sense of, of, of a poetic context is in this writing. Do they not all go to the same place? In other words, do they not all experience what? Death. And at that point, uh, into the same place means, uh, and look at the picture Jesus drew for us of, 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 of those who were right with God and those who were wrong with God. There was what? A gulf that separated them, but they could even see each other. The rich man and 
the, the, in Lazarus, the rich man laying on the other, other side saying, send him over here and, and, and give me something to drink. Can't be done. So, it is the same place in that context. So, we could even take it that far. So if a man lives many years, he fathers a hundred children, his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, uh, not even people want to show up to his burial, which is meaning that he had no respect of other people, I say better to have been stillborn. Now notice how he puts this. I say, this is my opinion. He's not saying God says at this point. He's making very clear. You don't see this hardly anywhere else in his writing here. I say this. It would be better off to be had been stillborn uh, and, and uh, without having seen the sun or knowing anything, he still finds the stillborn, you know, still finds rest, but not the Father. He finds no peace. Even if he were lived 2,000 years, it wouldn't change anything. All of man's toil, verse 7, is for his mouth, his appetite. And it's never satisfied. It's never fulfilled. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Basically, it's, it's that we all, no matter what our circumstances, we all go to the same end. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known that, that uh, what man is and he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And with it is the advantage to and and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Again, all of this talking about being under the sun. Uh, who really knows what is good for man when it's man? trying to determine it outside of God. I want you to think about that. All the cultures that, that, de- that deny the one true God, you know, the confusion and, and, and the hope, you know, I, you know if, I, if, I, if I light the right number of candles or I do this or I do that, uh, I'm making points with the gods or the God, you know, and, and all of the different things that people do. Uh, and, and who's to say what's working and what doesn't work? We do have one picture that's been given us through Scripture of something that we cling to. I only want to take just a really quick moment here to go back to the beginning. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And, and the idea of, of, of guarding your steps is, uh, when, is to uh, walk with respect with awe, with a reverent fear of who God is. That means to guard your steps. Uh, We don't take going into the presence of God lightly. It's something that we we look forward to and and we want to do. 
but it, it's something that we do calculated in the sense of reverence and awe and respect. Now, there's something that we need to think about here. This is definitely a picture of Old Testament coming into the presence of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Where's the house of God today? We are. Okay? So you've got to go to 1 Peter chapter 2 where it talks about we are the living stones put together and this type of thing. So if we're to think about this, we are to guard our steps not only when we go to the house of God, but because we are the house of God, how often should we be guarding and thinking about the steps we take? Constantly. We are called in Scripture to really think about guarding our tongue and, and guarding our thoughts. Jesus said, made it really clear. We're accountable for, for my microphone. No, uh, we're, we're accountable for, for every word that we say. That is intimidating to me. We're account- and, and by the way, because of the way Jesus puts it and looks at it in reference to thinking, it means every word we think that we don't even say. Every word we think. Because Jesus makes it really clear, if we think murder, if we think adultery, we've done it. So as we look at this, uh, you know, we, it's, it's a, uh, you know, Guarding our mouth, guarding our tongue, uh, guarding our steps. Be careful, little children, what, you know, where you go and all the things that go with that little song. Um, you know, to draw near to the... And then look at this. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice. To listen to God. How do we listen to God? You all, you all know the answer. Come on. You now, we do it through His Word. He has given us His Word. Now, granted, we may read it and not always get the same understanding because of our level of maturity within the same or walking with God. But the reality is, is that God has spoken to us through His Word. And we even call it God-breathed. And you know, when Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, it talks about, uh, chapter 3, it talks about that this is God-breathed. It's the Word of God. And so when we look at the Word of God, we have the, uh, a sense of who He is and, and what He wants for us and what He has in a sense of relation for us. We, we, we have a sense of what He is like and what blesses Him and pleases Him. And so we need to be listeners of the Word. Today, you know, we might turn around and say readers of the Word or, or whatever you want to put it in that context. But we need to have the Word as a focal point. Not something that happens on Sundays or Bible studies, but something that happens in relationship with my daily walk, my daily life. Somebody once told me, that's fine for you. You're a pastor. You get paid for it. I am amazed at times that I get paid to do quite candidly what I was doing before I ever got paid for it. But the reality is it, if, if God is in us and that's what we believe at the point in time that we have uh, received salvation, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, is there. 
and in us, we have someone who, as Jesus says, is our helper, our comforter, and our teacher. So that when we read the Word of God, He helps us to understand it. And it is amazing when, as you mature, as you grow, and you read Scriptures that you've been read, that you've heard preached on and everything, and then you go to it and you read it, and you say, oh my goodness, now I get it. And then you realize, six years, 60 years, whatever, uh, and you're reading it again and hearing it again, it says, oh, I get it better. It's an amazing thing, God's Word. And so we are called to listen to it, meaning to read it. And by the way, how, what's one way you could listen to it? Somebody says, well, I could get it on, on I started to say tape. That's archaic, isn't it? Uh, you know, you can get it on MP3, right? <laughs> uh, you can get it on, on, you know, different things. That, you know, or you could try this sometimes. Read it out loud. It's, it, it, there's a difference than just reading it. You know, some of you are, are speed readers. You, you, know, you, you learn to read fast and rapidly and this type of thing. And if you read it out loud, you have to slow it down. Now, I'm one of these people that reading out loud is actually allows me to read faster. Uh, I, I can't. I have some uh, eye tracking problems, uh, some brain complications, <laughs> wires crossed that that I I can't. I I follow the gaps between the words uh, and and make pictures out of them while I'm reading, <laughs> uh, and and so I it, it creates difficulties. So reading out loud is an amazing asset. But I'll tell you what, it gives you a whole different perspective of what you're doing with the Word. Just just throwing that out to you. Uh, you don't need a lot of words to speak with God, by the way. That's, that's something else that it comes out of this. Um, look at, at verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. doesn't mean few in the sense, but it, it, it does not take a lot of, of words to be in communion with God. You don't have to come up with a huge vocabulary that's, and, 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 you know, all of the lots of, you know, like if you're trying to talk with some Ph.D. person in your professor at, at college or something like that. It's a simple conversation. Is fine. It doesn't need to be complicated. God is ready to commune with you through His Word. And how do we do the other part? You know, through prayer. It's part of the picture as well. And verse uh, 4, when you vow, vow to God. I'm not going to get into vows. First off, there is no biblical mandate to vow. Okay, it's a choice. And I'm going to suggest to you what Jesus suggested when he was when he was asked about certain things. He says, it's better to just let your what? Yes, be yes. And your no, be no. You don't need to. I swear to God. Or I swear by the Temple Mount or I swear by this or I swear by that. I swear by my mother's grave. You know, I think of all the different things that people have that I've heard they swear by. You know, which means you have to wonder if they don't swear. Does that mean that I have to under think they might not be telling the truth? You know, uh, so this idea of, of, of you know let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
but what he's saying here is don't let your mouth lead you into sin. And, and that is, again, to this picture. Let your, your, your speech be with integrity. Uh, verse 7 says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Uh, in other words, when you get too verbose, you know, uh, to, you know I, I think of this one person, I love him dearly, uh, but when, when, when Danny prayed, it was the most beautiful King James English. And, and it was so poetic. It was fun to listen to and everything. And when we had open prayer sessions and he prayed, that was the end of prayer. Nobody ever followed after him. Uh, because we, it was kind of like, that was beautiful. And it was neat. And, and, I, and I don't misunderstand. It's, but but it, those things aren't the criteria for coming and approaching God in prayer. It doesn't have to be eloquent. It has to be heartfelt. That's what God is looking for. And so, uh, you know, this last phrase is, but God is the one you must fear. And this idea of fear. By the way, I've, I've misrepresented this a few times over the years. You know, the idea is, is I say, not quaking in your boots. Don't, don't, if, if you know, there's nothing wrong with having a, a legitimate fear of the awesomeness of God that's a little intimidating. But I'm not shaking in my boots because of, of, of fear of, of being done in or judgment because it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, I, but just the awesomeness of standing in the presence of something so amazing to be in the presence of God. Okay, so it is really an awe-felt relationship. To be in awe of God. He's the one. And, and, and a lot of these other things that people do, they do for you to be in awe of me. You know, I, was, uh, I, I, I have the uh, uh, prayer language, and I'm not talking about speaking in tongues, uh, that is eloquent so that when I pray, you know, you're drawn in with me. Okay? And just... The notoriety kind of falls on the prayerer instead of the, the the one receiving, and we want to be careful that we don't allow that to become a part of who we are. That we don't stand in front of people, uh, and and I have to confess, you know, when I come and and do a sermon, I want you to be pleased. I, I there's a part of me that 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 you know when you go out and you you, you stand at the door and somebody says, "Good sermon, Pastor," I you know. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> you know, uh, I can't say that I don't have those feelings. Okay, but the other side of it is, is that we don't want to be that the motivating factor of why I would be up here to share the word. And so we come back to this, this picture of, of uh, wanting to. Be a, a, a one who speaks freely with God, uh, who, who, who prays openly with God. We don't have to have a special prayer language. And I, again, I'm not talking about the charismatic stuff as much as just, you know, uh, the King James English type of thing. And, and this idea of, of uh, being thankful to God for what He has done, but also being honest to God. 
when we pray and we come to God in, in prayer, what is one of the things that we should be doing is recognizing what we are. Sinners. One of the things we need to settle with God every time as we come to Him, even though we know we're saved, is that reality that we are sinners. Examine ourselves. Take a look at who we are before the throne of God and, and, and ask to, through His Holy Spirit to reveal to us individually the things that are weak in us that, that, that need to be strengthened and pray that God would do that in us. Give us the right verses. Give us the right friends. Give us the people to come alongside that would encourage us to be able to grow and be stronger in Christ. And so, uh, as we as we look at that, you know, this idea, uh, the, I, the thing that came to my mind when I was looking at this was in in, in the Gospel of Luke, where the, the 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 Pharisee is praying, "Thank you, God, for not making me like the tax collector over there." You know, I'm a holy and righteous guy. He's a jerk. And then the, the the jerk, he's over there praying, God, forgive me you know, for my sins and burying his heart before God and opening his soul and asking for grace and mercy and forgiveness. And God says, who went away justified? The jerk. Yeah. The tax collector. And so we don't want to turn it all into religion. We just want it to, to be a relationship. 1 Corinthians tells us, in fact, in chapter 11, where it talks about communion, it says, examine yourself. Verse 28, examine yourself. Paul gives the instructions in verses 23 through 26 about how to interact in, in communion together. And, and this, but, but he says, be sure that you are examining yourself. So as we have communion this morning, I'm going to encourage you, examine yourself. And, and, and it's not that time to examine someone else. Uh, there's been times where, where I've been in churches where communion is something that you went up as a family group and you did it at the table and, the, and it was a rather lengthy process. Uh, communion was done once a month, not every Sunday. And, and so it was something special to that. And I can, I can tell you, I have heard whispers sitting out in the, in the thing about when some... We spent time getting right with God. You know, something to that effect. It's amazing what we do. You know, what if I just think it and didn't, didn't whisper it? Still the same thing. This is not a time to look at someone else who needs to go to the, the throne of God. This is a time to look at yourself and no one else. Self-examination, Okay. So I'm going to ask the uh, worship team to come back, the ushers to come out and pass the communion and uh, hold it and, and, and we'll all share it together.